we're going to consider this morning verses 26 through 40. So Acts 8, 26 through 40. And if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one from the pew racks and uh, make your way to page 917. And that's where you'll find uh, our passage, Acts 8, 26 through 40. And in keeping with Liam and what he's going to be doing, I'm going to uh, present to you today a locally sourced, handcrafted, office-to-pulpit sermon. <laughs> Artisanal. Let's pray, and we'll read God's Word together. Heavenly Father, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but your Word remains forever because it is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. Lord, quite simply, your word works. Your word works because you work. You are at work. And so be at work today, within us and among us. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to receive, and then voices to proclaim. The good news of the gospel. Jesus, who he is and what he has done for us. Fix our eyes on him this morning. In his name, amen. All right, again, Acts 8. 26. This is God's holy word. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. And so Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this, Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearers is silent. And so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? And then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when, the Lord came up, uh, when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself... As at, at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. May God write his word upon our hearts. So if you're visiting with us, we are taking this year to work our way through the book of Acts. And at this point in the book of Acts, uh, two subtle shifts are beginning to occur. And so thus far, we've seen thousands come to faith in Jesus. We've seen thousands added to the church. On the day of Pentecost, 3,000. 
Uh, some weeks later, after Peter and John were released from prison, a couple thousand more, it seems like every time we turn the page, multitudes and multitudes are putting their faith in Jesus, but they've mostly been anonymous. And the emphasis up to this point has been on the incredible amount of people that were converted. But from this point forward, we'll begin to get glimpses into personal conversion stories. The emphasis begins to shift from multitudes to individuals. Another interesting shift is that while we'll continue to see the apostles and soon the apostle Paul preaching to large crowds, we, we've seen that already, they, they're preaching to large crowds, they'll continue to do that, but we'll also begin to see many personal encounters, personal evangelism stories. And so today, that's what I want to focus on. It's what this passage focuses on, the need, the call, the place, the particulars of personal evangelism. You know, there's, there is absolutely a time and a place and a need for the public preaching of God's Word. I believe that God works in a unique way through the regular, uh, consistent preaching of His Word. But there is also a time and a place and a need for individual Christians to share the message of the gospel. I can already see in your faces and feel in the room, some of you tensing up just a little bit when I talk about personal evangelism. Some of you are probably thinking like Moses, I'm not a good speaker. Isn't that why we hire pastors? Maybe some of you are thinking, I'm, I'm an introvert. Do you realize how hard it is for me to talk to people? Maybe some of you are, are conjuring objections that I haven't even thought of for why personal evangelism just isn't your thing. Now, I don't want to, uh, this morning, take the Nike approach. I don't want to just say, just do it. Personal evangelism, just do it. I do want to call you to personal evangelism, but I want to give you some compelling answers to your objections, and I want to send you out this morning with encouragement and not condemnation. But I, I do want to call us all to engage in, in a life of a, an evangelistic life, a, a, a life of personal evangelism, sharing the gospel with those that God has put in our spheres of influence. Before we talk about that, though, before I get to that, I want to take just a moment to, to set the scene. So we have, in this passage, two main players, Philip and an unnamed African official, simply referred to as, as a eunuch. Uh, in the time that this was written, just for context, uh, Ethiopia did not refer to the country that we know as Ethiopia today. The region of Ethiopia was, was an African region that stretched from southern uh, Egypt down to what is now known as Sudan. And so that's the region, if you sort of know your African history, the, the northeast sort of quadrant of Africa, stretching from about the middle of Egypt down to Sudan. Ethiopia, the country now, is to the east of that. But that's, that's the region. And the king of Ethiopia because of their pluralistic religion, he was regarded as a son of the sun god Al-Makkah. So the king of Ethiopia, the, the son of the sun god, he was a divine figure. And as a divine figure, he, he really didn't get his hands dirty. He didn't uh, get involved in the, the administration of his country's affairs. That was the responsibility of either his mother or his wife. Um, the queen mother 
or even the king's wife, the queen, would oversee the administration of the country's affairs. And I was thinking it's sort of like the way that in our home, Kimbo handles our bills, right? She handles the administration of the fair family affairs. If I were in charge, we would be naked and penniless. Maybe that was the case then. So Kimbo, Kimbo handles the bills in this region of Africa, this area. The queen mother or the queen oversaw the, the administration. And, and by the way, just a note, um, this, this doesn't translate well into English. The queen's name was not Candace, right? So we see in, uh, in verse, what is that, 27, and he arose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a, unit, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. Uh, Kandake was a name that many African queens took. It was an honorary title. So her name was not Candace. This is her title, Kandake. Um, she was the queen of this African region, and she employed many um, court officials. And these officials would handle the day-to-day operations. And one of her officials, who was sort of like the CFO for the nation, he was the treasurer, was this man that we're introduced here, this, this eunuch. And it was fairly common uh, in that day for court officials, uh, for servants of the queen to be eunuchs. Uh, eunuchs were men who had been castrated. And it was thought that if a man was castrated, then he would be trustworthy and loyal. If he didn't have a wife, and if he wasn't interested in women, then he would be completely devoted to queen and country. But interestingly, over the years, hiring, uh, hiring eunuchs as court officials became such a common practice that the term eunuch actually took on a much broader meaning, and it was used for any court official. So have you ever wondered how Luke, who's recording this, or Philip, who's involved in this, knew this man was a eunuch? Was it because he had an incredibly high voice? I, no, it was because he had a position of prominence. Right? He, was a, he was a court official. And so whether or not this man was truly a eunuch or whether he was just a court official um, is unknown, but that's the context. Let me give you one more observation. Uh, Hundreds of years before this, the Hebrews had been enslaved in Egypt. And when they left, when Moses led them out of Egypt, the, the, the Israelites left behind their religion and customs. And so in northern Africa and in central Africa, you had many non-Hebrews who knew about the God of Israel. You had, you had many indigenous people who had embraced the Jewish faith. And, and it seems that something as similar is going on here with this Ethiopian official. Uh, he knew about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was curious about God's law. He had traveled to Jerusalem to attend a holy day feast. He was on his way back to his country from Jerusalem when this encounter with Philip occurred. So that's the scene, that's the setting. Now what does all this mean for personal evangelism? What does it mean for us? I've got five thoughts I want to share. Five practical implications and applications that I believe are, are meant for each of us. And here's the first. You have been equipped with everything you need to share Jesus. You. You have been equipped with everything you need to share Jesus. Just consider Philip. Philip himself is, is a Hellenist. He's a, he, he himself is a fairly new convert. He didn't have any Bible training that we're told of. He hadn't gone to seminary. He hadn't even taken a personal evangelism course. 
The only qualifications that he had, which we're told of in chapter 6, is that he had a good reputation and he was full of wisdom and the Spirit. He had the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, and that was all he needed to begin sharing Jesus. Now, I, I don't want to minimize, um, I don't want to downplay evangelism training. I don't want to belittle being a good Bible student. Those things will certainly help us in life. They will help us as we share the gospel. But many times, we don't share Jesus because we don't believe that we are equipped to share Jesus. Many times, we, we don't engage in personal evangelism because we don't believe that we are able to do so. You know, when I was in college, the man who was mentoring me, we were talking about some of these things, and he said, Jeremy, do you know what you need to know in order to share Jesus? You need to know Jesus. And then he said, and it would help to know a little bit more than the person you're talking with. But that's it. You don't have to have a personal evangelism course. You don't have to have a degree from seminary. You have to know Jesus. And so do you know Jesus? Do you know him personally and intimately? Do you have the presence of the Holy Spirit within you? Do you generally understand the big picture of the Bible? Right? Can, you, can you loosely connect the dots that it's a story of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration? Can you sort of fumble your way through the Bible and share with someone a message of sin and the Savior? And if you can, you're equipped. God has given you everything you need in the Holy Spirit to share Jesus. So I was visiting, I was visiting with this lady one time a couple of years ago, and, and I shared with her what I've just shared with you, that, that you are equipped to share the message of the gospel. And she said, yeah, but you don't know so-and-so. They really know the Bible, and they have all these questions that I can't answer. Again, it's It's helpful to know our Bibles well and to answer common objections. It's, it's good. It would be helpful to have an apologetic framework. But I want you to understand that most of the time, people's objections are just a smokescreen. I mentioned earlier in my prayer, the woman at the well in John 4. Jesus encounters this Samaritan woman, interestingly enough, at the well. And uh, he confronts her. And he says, go and call your husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. And he says, you're right, you've had so, so and so many husbands, five, I think, husbands, and the man you're now with is not your husband. And she says, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. <laughs> and she says, so let me ask. And, and so this is this, is, this is incredible diversion tactic. It's all a smokescreen. Our, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but your people say that in Jerusalem is the place to worship, so which is it going to be? And he says, no, 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 let's, let's, let's dispense with all of that. She wasn't concerned with the proper place of worship. It was a diversion tactic. It was a way for her to not face the reality of the one she was speaking with. It was a way of avoiding Jesus. And too often we fall into that trap. We're talking with someone and they, they present an argument or an objection or a diversion tactic and we play right along with it. We major on minors and we miss Jesus. But if you know Jesus, then you have the answer. So you, friend, whether you've been a Christian for many, many years or are a relatively new convert like Philip, if you have the Holy Spirit, then you've been equipped to share the gospel. Here's a second thought. God will put you right where he wants you 
with whom he wants you when he wants to. Uh, This encounter with the Ethiopian eunuch was a divine appointment. Long before Philip arrived on the scene, God was at work. And so what that tells us is that we don't have to worry about getting out ahead of God. We don't have to worry about getting out ahead of the Spirit. This doesn't mean that we should just wait idly and sit on our hands or that we should wait for a word from the Lord, that we should wait for the Lord to tell us to go or or that we should wait to be teleported, which kind of seems to uh, happen here at the end of the passage. But what I'm saying is that we don't have to force personal evangelistic encounters. You don't have to force them. God will prepare hearts, and when he prepares hearts, he prepares a path, and he puts us right where he wants us, with whom he wants us at the right time. Again, I, I, I believe that God works in a unique way through the regular and public preaching of the word, that the Holy Spirit does something peculiar. When an unbeliever is here in our midst, when an unbeliever uh, hears Uh, us worshiping God and sees us worshiping God and sees us submitting to God through his word. But you know, many people will never darken the doors of a church. In fact, if the reports are true, then here in the U.S., 60% of Americans have never attended a church service and and have no plans of ever doing so. Do we just write them off? If, if this is the place where the message of the gospel and the only place where the message of the gospel is proclaimed, if people have to come through those doors in order to hear the good news, do we write off the 60% who are never going to come through those doors? Or do we meet them right where they are as we see Philip meeting this Ethiopian official right where he is? You have family, mer- family members and friends. You have coworkers and classmates that I'll never meet that Jason will never meet. Listen, invite them to church. That's real low-hanging fruit. Invite them to church, but understand that God has put you right where he wants you, and you can share Jesus as good as I can or as Jason can or any of our elders can. So if you're wondering, if this thought comes into your head, is the Spirit leading me to talk to so-and-so? I'm going to give you the Spirit's answer, yes. I'm going to speak for God on this one. The answer is yes. God has put you right where he wants you, with whom he wants you, when he wants to. And he's at work preparing hearts. Invite him to church. That's real easy to do. But understand that he has put you in people's lives to share the gospel. Here's a third thought. Be sensitive to spiritual seekers. Now, I can already hear the objections, even though no one's speaking them out loud. Jeremy, you're a good Presbyterian pastor. You know that no one seeks after God. Sure, that's true. But we've got to do something with this Ethiopian eunuch here in the passage, right? He may not have been seeking Jesus, but he was seeking and searching for something. He was searching for answers. And a few weeks ago, I shared with you the, the findings of a new report that's about six weeks old. And it reveals that Americans, and that's most of our primary context, Americans identifying with no religion make up 23.1% of the population, 
while Americans identifying as evangelical Christians make up 22.8% of the population. But I didn't share this with you a few weeks ago. The highest percentage of respondents in that survey were people who claimed to be spiritual or religious without any sort of affiliation. They didn't claim to be Christian. They didn't claim to be you know, an adherent to another major religion, but they were spiritual, whatever that means. They were religious folks. And that should tell us something. It should tell us that people are searching for something. They're searching for something. They're searching for meaning. They're searching for answers. And Jesus may be the farthest thing from their minds, but he is the answer they're looking for and don't know it. Let me give you a piece of practical advice when you're dealing with someone who is a spiritual seeker. And again, let's hold these two things in tension. That in Romans chapter 3, drawing upon Isaiah, Paul tells us there are none who seek after God, no, not one. We can hold that at the same time, and we can also believe the Old Testament tells us, seek the Lord while he may be found. So a piece of practical advice when dealing with someone who's a spiritual seeker, don't barrage them with statements, begin with questions. I, I love I love the way this narrative unfolds. Philip ran up to the man's chariot, heard him reading from the prophet Isaiah, and then he didn't say, hey, let me stop you. Let me tell you about this guy Isaiah. I mean, Isaiah was the man. He was the greatest foreteller of the Messiah. Philip listened before he spoke. He began by listening. He, he, he didn't go up and, and make a bunch of propositional statements. He said, do you understand what you're reading? And of course, the man didn't. So he invited Philip into a conversation. Friends, people who are spiritually seeking will almost always be willing to listen if we meet them on their turf and listen to them first. Here's a fourth thought. We need the church. We need one another to help us see Jesus. And this implication is broader than just for personal evangelism. It's true for all of us all the time. You know, if, if the eunuch were like most American churchgoers, when Philip approached him, he would have said, no thanks, <laughs> I don't need your help. I got this all figured out. Um, all I need is my Bible, right? That, that's, that's what he would have said. Do you understand what you're reading? No, I, I'm good. Spirit will lead me. Funny enough, he had a Bible, and he still couldn't see Jesus in one of the clearest Old Testament passages about Jesus. He asked, who, who's this about? One of the greatest doctrines that was recaptured in the Reformation was the priesthood of all believers, the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. And that doctrine, one of the things it tells us, is that in Jesus, the great high priest, we don't need any other holy man to stand as a go-between between God and us. That, that we don't need someone to mediate a relationship between God and us because Christ, the great high priest, has done that. that. That we have access to God, that we have the spirit within us, that we can read his word, that he's at work in each of us, not just in a priestly class. But one of the greatest misunderstandings of that doctrine, and it's even greater here, here in our time, 
is that interpreting Scripture is a private matter. Listen, under, understanding and interpreting Scripture is not a private matter. We ask the question, what does this passage mean to me? No, what does this passage mean? You see, we stand on the shoulders of past saints. God has given us pastors and teachers and one another to help us see Jesus. If all people needed were a Bible in order to see Jesus, then God's mission for us would be to be printers, not evangelists. But people need someone to show them Jesus from the Word. And that's why Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes, you will receive power and you will be my witnesses. The ability to be witnesses has been given to us, not to the Word. Now, who do we witness to? We witness to Jesus. And how do we know Jesus? Because Jesus has revealed himself in the Word. But in God's economy, we need others to help us see Jesus. That leads me to a fifth thought. We need others to help us see Jesus, and we need to help others see Jesus. That's really the heart of evangelism. The, the heart of evangelism is to help others see Jesus. So notice what Philip shared. Then he opened his mouth, and beginning with this particular scripture, Isaiah 53, he told him the good news about Jesus. So I ask you to pray for us last week. In a few days, um, Ethan, my son Cademan, and I will be going to Cuba. And uh, we'll be taking in 10 Bibles each because that's the limit. You can take in 10 Bibles apiece um, before they kind of frown on that. And uh, one of the things that we've discovered, this will be my fourth trip down there, is that people need more than just a Bible. They need someone to point them to Jesus within the Bible. Now, the Word is living, the Word is active. I pray that every week. The Word is sharper than a two-edged sword, and God can and does work through His Word, and sometimes beyond human means. We have examples of that historically. Uh, Augustine, St. Augustine, heard this phrase, tole lege, take up and read, and he opens Scripture, and God works through that. We have a similar account with Martin Luther and others. But our task, friends, is not to simply give someone a Bible and leave it at that, but it's to give them Jesus. Right? Our task is to help them see Jesus. Now, here are a couple of observations about verse 35 in particular. First, Philip didn't get bogged down in, in talking about the dangers of religious pluralism. Remember who this guy is, this African official, this Ethiopian eunuch? He's, uh, he's an official for Kandeki Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians. He works for the king, who's a divine figure. He didn't spend his time talking about the dangers of pluralism, the dangers of false god worship. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, it doesn't seem from the text like they had much time for that. Their journey's not far. The conversation's not long. He's explaining to him Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8. And as they're journeying along, the man says, Here, here's water. I believe. Let me follow Christ. Friends, this, this practically means that we miss the mark when we're trying to, to talk with others, when we get bogged down trying to convince others about secondary and tertiary issues. I've wasted so many conversations with people who were non-believers trying to get them to convince them about certain things. 
passing right over Jesus. We miss the mark in sharing Jesus when we try to convince people of secondary and tertiary things. Look, God will open their hearts and we can have those conversations. But I I love verse 35. Then he opened his mouth and beginning with the scripture, he didn't talk about Deutero, Isaiah. He didn't talk about whether whether this was, was part of the first part of Isaiah and critical theory. He opened his mouth and shared Jesus. Let me give you a second observation. People should leave an encounter with us feeling as if they've heard good news. Not good advice. Not judgment. Not morals. But good news. Philip told him the good news about Jesus, and it's clear from the text the man was eagerly receptive. He longed to know this good news. He longed to follow Jesus And people that hear judgment and condemnation do not eagerly respond the way that this man responded. And so people should leave an encounter with us feeling as if they've heard good news. Now let me be quick to add, this doesn't mean that we should sugarcoat the gospel. It it doesn't mean that we shouldn't bring up sin. In fact, we must because the good news is only good when the bad news is so awful. We only need a Savior if we're sinners. But the emphasis in this encounter, and it's so clear, the emphasis is not a confrontation, but a confirmation. God was already at work. And Jesus is the answer this man was looking for and didn't know it. Too often our evangelistic encounters, if we have them at all, are confrontations. He told him the good news about Jesus. I think I'm going to stop there. I got about a page and a half more of notes. I'm going to stop right there. Listen, I know that that stopping there, I haven't waded into the water of baptism, pun intended here. Um, There's a baptism in this passage, and I I haven't addressed it. And as as I was thinking just now, I want to save that. Because in several weeks, we're going to, uh, after, we, after I preach through chapter 16, you have two incredible baptisms in chapter 16, Lydia and the Philippian jailer. I'm going to take a week, I've, Jason, I've been talking about this, I'm going to take a week, just like I did, and, and sort of a topical week on the Holy Spirit and the gifts and work of the Spirit. We're going to take a week and, and, and uh, talk about baptism. We'll talk about the meaning of baptism, mode of baptism, the recipients of baptism, and we'll go back and capture all of these baptisms that we've seen from um, the eunuch here to others. But, but for now, let's pray for open eyes and hearts to receive the divine appointments that God scheduled. And friends, let's be committed to personal evangelism. It's one thing to, uh, to invite folks to church to hear the good news, but let's remember that God has called each of us to share that good news. Let's do so. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace and goodness to us in Jesus. Uh, Thank you that you sought us and bought us when we were wandering and had a debt of sin. Lord, that you did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And now you've given us the ministry of reconciliation. As Ethan read a moment ago, Isaiah, uh, when he was converted and his sin was atoned for, said, Uh, The Lord said, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah said, here I am, send me. And you said, go. Philip wasn't an apostle. 
He was just one of the early men in the church who had a profound impact because he was actually obedient. Because he put his money where his mouth is and, and did what you called all believers to do, to be witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And so, Lord, help us to do that. That your mission hasn't changed, your call hasn't changed, the, the message hasn't changed. Help us to speak of Jesus in the spheres that you've given us, the people in our lives. Lord, help us to, to, to point others to the hope that lies within us. And give us that hope even now, through Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.